This is Consensu, the podcast, episode 494 for the week of November 27th, 2022. Hello, hey, Os, welcome back to Konsenshu, the podcast, an extension of the all-encompassing Dragon Ball fansite, Konsenshu. We cover anything and everything Dragon Ball in hopes of enlightening and a little bit of entertaining. Hey, been a while. My name is Mike. You may see me around the internets as Vegito EX. We got a doozy of an episode for you this week, uh, month, uh, quarter, whatever it is is at this point uh just in time for things to pick up next month we're reviewing the granola arc granola the survivor from the dragon ball super manga we're going to pick up partway through chapter 67 and then running over the course of about a year and a half through chapter 87 this is the latest story arc it has come and gone we're going to get into all the spoilerific analysis this episode two special guests will be joining me number one ken you may see him around the internet as detective x and ian over in japan you may see him around the internet as cypher uh over these next roughly two hours so buckle in we got a good one for you uh, i'm gonna hit you up on the flip side of that discussion to look ahead uh what's next for the podcast and the site as a whole so enjoy we're getting right on into it i'll see you then here we go we are back again for another gigantic arc review this time around. It is the Granola the Survivor arc from the Dragon Ball Super manga. Who's here with me today? Back again from the Moro Review, it's Ken. Hey, Mike, I'm proud to announce that we're nearing the climax of this episode oh, okay. and that the next <laughs> podcast episode will be out before the end of December 2022. Yeah, that That's the truest statement I've heard from the realm of Dragon Ball uh, this calendar year. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, back from the Superhero Review and various manga and production check-ins, Ian, hello, sir, all the way from Japan. Hello, I'm Ian, and the most important thing is believing in yourself and your convictions, no matter what species you are. I've gathered the folks here. We are going to review the Granola arc. Um, I, I want to set up the review. It's been a while since we've done a review, even though it was the last podcast episode, which was several months ago and was a review episode. But hey, how about them Dragon Ball Super arcs? How do we do it here at Konzenshu, the podcast? Well, we've traditionally reviewed Dragon Ball Super by arcs rather than by episode or by chapter. Uh, I say it's to give it a, a more holistic review with the full context. It also is uh, only a single episode instead of doing multiple episodes. So that makes it slightly easier on me and and incredibly more difficult at the same time. Um, this one we're actually doing a few months late in quotes. Uh, that said, I, I think it's perfect timing. We had even more time to stew about things than usual. Um, the only other thing I kind of want to set up uh, up front is um, let's say that uh, just because we didn't say something doesn't necessarily mean we forgot it. Um, the four hour overly pedantic episodes are absolute killer. Uh, but if you truly think something wasn't covered, hold tight on that. What this arc is, well, this was the second manga-only manga original story arc in the Dragon Ball Super continuity, and that sure is a fucking sentence if I've ever heard one, um, following the Galactic Patrol Prisoner arc, which itself followed the Universe Survival arc slash the Tournament of Power. Um, this is going to be the, the quickest follow-up to um, prior podcast episodes that we've ever done. Ian, can you give us like the elevator spiel on the production behind this arc and uh, maybe what was slightly different from before, and also in many ways what's old is new again? 
Sure. So in the Moro arc, we had it all but stated that it was not a Toriyama draft, as had been the case for previous Super Storylines, uh, but something that Toyotaro had really taken the reins on and then gotten bits of feedback and editorial uh, improvement from, or I guess that Toyotaro had drafted and gotten editorial uh, comments or additions from uh, on the port part of Toriyama. Uh, for the Granola arc, we know that there were story ideation meetings happening toward the end of the Moro arc. Uh, we heard those mentioned from various sources uh, as that was wrapping up its serialization. Uh, and what came out, uh, I believe the interview is actually included at the back of volume 16, uh, looks like 17, it was also published on the official Dragon Ball website. Uh, Granola had started out with a pitch from Toyotaro uh, that was run through Victory Uchida, the editor over at V-Jump. Uh, they brought the idea of the character and the general scenario over to Toriyama, who then produced a full draft, or from their wording, a full draft, sort of in line with what he had done for the TV-adjacent storylines. Uh, so the final version, which includes elements like the Hidas and the Namekians and some of the additional lore... Um, that all came from Toriyama. So there is a full Toriyama draft for this arc in a similar manner that he would have produced one for the uh, pre-Moro storylines. However, the initial seed coming from, Torio coming from Toyotaro and coming from these V-Jump meetings uh, is different from the TV-adjacent storylines. So I guess that's the sort of similarities and differences there. Um, there, was a Torio uh, there was a Toriyama draft for this arc, but Toyotaro's presence here is higher than it would have been for, say, the first three storylines of Super. Yeah, I, I was joking a little bit about uh, being pedantic earlier, but I do want to slightly go down that route. Um, th is the word Ginan that, that's being translated, we're using as draft, but kind of serves as outline as well. I, I kind of, the reason I bring that up is we don't have like literal storyboards from Toriyama. We have what people have colloquially referred to as like the paper napkin notes from Toriyama for this. Yeah, so he produced some sort of storyline draft. And yeah, the word used for that is Genon, which is the same word that was used for his unseen storyline drafts for the TV series arcs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the same vocabulary is being used here. The only difference that we have from those arcs is that we know there was an initial character and basic concept pitch that came from Toyotaro. Um, so from the interview, sorry, it's at the back of... Uh, yep, volume 17 uh, it was originally published on the Dragon Ball Super website. Or sorry, on the official Dragon Ball website in video form. Uh, yeah, there was a there were a bunch of storyline meetings between Toyotaro, uh, Victory Uchida, and Toriyama. Uh, the character of Granola and the basic concept for the storyline was one of those pitches, one of the ideas that came up in those meetings. It was delivered to Toriyama. He took that and then provided this much fleshed out full storyline. Um, that he then handed back over to Toriotaro, and that became the basis for the arc as we see it. Uh, I know this is still a point of confusion for a lot of people, uh, and Viz's English uh, credits on the manga don't help, but the actual writer of every chapter, the person who is scripting and drawing it, is all uh, Toyotaro, but uh, an initial storyline draft in some form, however detailed or not de detailed it was, did come from Toriyama in this case. 
Yeah, there's a separate article slash podcast about Gensaku that needs to come just any day now. All right, I think that's a, a, <clears throat> a perfect setup for it. Uh, I, I want to talk about our reading experience a little bit. Uh, I always like to have a native reader on the show. And by native, I mean not necessarily native, but as fluent as we're going to get. Um, I can speak for myself. I'm reading in English. Uh, that's all I can do. Uh, so I've been reading um, This is English Translation, translated by Caleb Cook each month on Viz's uh, official website. Um, I also buy V-Jump because I'm a maniac. Uh, Ken, how about you? Yeah, I read it in English, the Caleb Cook version. Um, I own the Tonkoban in Japanese, but <laughs> don't read Japanese. Uh, so yeah, English. And then Ian, you're kind of like the, the flip side of that. You're also slightly maniacal buying things, but then also reading it. I live in Japan and buy the V-Jump magazine as it comes out monthly. Um, so that's how I read it, these chapters initially. Uh, and now that I've reread it several times, that was also using the Japanese Tonkobon releases. Um, so I have only read most of this arc in Japanese. I've not seen uh, most of the English unless something came up as a point of confusion. Um, so I've spot checked it here and there, but otherwise... Uh, anything I say in my whole perspective on this is just coming from the Japanese version. If there's something really wild that comes up as a difference, I, I might have no idea. We're going to do something slightly different here. This is going to be a total surprise for the folks I have. Um, last time on the show, I guess I should set it up by going all the way back to the manga review of Awesomeness. Um, I would summarize each chapter. We would talk about them uh, for the arcs. We did uh, summaries of the arcs. Last time around, I did a summary of the Moro arc. This time, I'm going to just blatantly steal from another podcast that I've been enjoying, which is Just King Things, a chronological exploration and review of the complete works by Stephen King. Uh, and something I love about their show is their impromptu on the spot five sentence summary of the book. Um, you guys didn't know this was coming. And I flipped a coin and can you won slash lost on this. So what you're going to give me here uh, are five sentences to summarize the entirety of the granola arc. Now, what's great about this is that you have full usage of parentheses, semicolons, colons, commas. Uh, I encourage you to use them, and I encourage you to vocalize them as as you use them. Can I use M dashes? You sure can. Um, and this will be the official summary of the arc on konzenshu.com uh, moving forward. Probably not, but... That is a large <laughs> task. All right, let's go. All right, so se sentence number one. Cerulean, who wears a goggle and has sniper vision... Boy, he's mad about them scions because he thinks they're responsible for the death of his mother and for, you know, everyone. That's sentence one. Sentence one. Okay. <laughs> All right. Sentence number sentence two. two. Goku and Vegeta, well, they're training again to kind of doing the same paths they've been on for quite a while. You thought Goku, that's a, there's a semicolon in there. Okay. Good, good. You thought Goku had mastered Ultra Instinct already, comma, <laughs> no. Period. Okay. The Hitas, who are behind nast nasty stuff in the universe, they have set up for Granola, who has used the Dragon Balls to become the greatest fighter in the universe. That was in parentheses. Okay. Well, I'm on the third sentence, right? Okay. Yep, yep, yep. You're midway. What else can I cram in here? Okay. The Hitas have set up for... Granola and the science to fight, the science being Goku and Vegeta, that was parentheses, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that they can take each other out, clearing the way to deal with 
a recently resurrected Frieza. Okay. Sentence four. Uh Oh, I got a lot to cram into this one. (laughs) So Goku and Vegeta fight Granola. And ultimately it's revealed that Goku's dad, Bardock was not as bad a guy on planet, uh, planet cereal, right? (laughs) Planet cereal as they thought leading granola to side uneasily side with the science all right here's the big finale final sentence here yep 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 (laughs) that's gonna cram about 10 chapters worth of story in it goku and vegeta and granola fight gas who has also become the greatest universe (laughs) the universe's greatest fighter only for frieza to show up at the last minute kill gas kill elec and recruit oil and maki the the end yeah, I'll give you a free the end there. That's the Granola the Survivor story arc. Thanks for stopping by, everyone. Had a wonderful time. All right. So now that we uh, have explored the story of the story arc, I say we just get right into it. <laughs> I want to start us off actually with character designs. And the reason I say that is because we know that was kind of the start of what may have brought this arc up. About, you know, we're coming up with these characters, we're pitching characters and situations. Uh, Granola's an interesting kind of character. It feels like an amalgamation of Toriyama esque designs. Not quite as if someone used a Toriyama character creator, but certainly took elements. Ian, what does Granola feel like to you in terms of uh, the Dragon World and its designs? Uh, yeah. Well, I want to say when the design for Granola first came out, a lot of people did question whether it was uh, Toriyama or Toyotaro. I remember a lot of debate about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we eventually found out that it was a Toyotaro original. He does he does look like a sort of pick-and-choose uh, Toriyama design elements. Um, I think he's probably one of the better Toyotaro designs just as far as looking like he's of a piece with Dragon Ball or with Toriyama's art because of that. But he looks exactly like... Is it is it Kintoki? Is that is that the name of that series? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the Kintoki comparisons are really interesting because of the eye thing, goggle ish sort of things going on, sniper ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he looks almost exactly like. Well, now that I'm looking at him, I don't want to say almost exactly, but he does share a lot of elements with uh, Kintoki, the uh, Toriyama character from. Uh, his own self-titled uh, short series. The hair design, the scarf design, uh, the color choices a little bit as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, he also, he feels a bit Dragon Quest-ish um, from some of the mm-hmm. more elaborate or like slightly more steampunkish leaning designs that occasionally crop up there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I quite like him. I, I think previous Toyotaro characters for me have felt maybe a little bit uh, outside the normal realm of Toriyama's art or the normal realm of uh, Dragon Ball character design. I think Moro especially. Uh, I do like him. Yeah. He, he feels like he might be like a Dragon Quest like late mid-boss somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, he feels a little bit out of place. And uh, yeah, Granola fits right in. He's, he's probably one of my favorite non-Toriyama Dragon Ball designs just as far as feeling like he's part of its world. Ken, looking at your your just wonderful camera work here, I see you've got Granola almost front and center, just just absolutely loving Granola, huh? Uh, yeah, so I can only speak of this from my own art experiences. You know, I've drawn a few Granola pieces 
over the over the years, I guess, with this arc. <laughs> and I think, like, small detail-wise, I think he's a little bit over-detailed. Um, it is annoying when I'm drawing, like, his belt, and then I have to go and draw all the little dashes that um, imply a thread moving through that. And, like, for me, I really liked it when his, um, his coat kind of got blasted off and he just had the under, because it's like yeah, <laughs> the classic yeah. Toriyama thing of, oh, now I don't have to color in the hair. You know, it's it's now I don't have to draw all these extra details. And so him and the the Hitas are skew on the side of over detailed for me. But having said that, you know, over the course of this arc, I fell in love with especially Granola. Um, the Hitas, <laughs> even well, you know, I'll give it. I did end up liking Gas. Spoiler alert. What? Um, what? So uh, I, I design wise uh, a little over detailed, but not excruciatingly so. And Ian, the the Hitas was a, a little bit of a point of contention in terms of design stuff in, in this arc, right? We have details in one of the back of the volume is interviews about the Hitas design process. Um, so they were also Toyotaro, and he apparently sent back multiple drafts of their designs to Toriyama and had them rejected each time. Uh, so the, the four that we see are the result of uh, much sweat and tears, uh, it would seem. Um, <laughs> the, the thing about the Hitas is they... Uh, am I allowed to mention Bojack? They, they look a lot like the Bojack gang. Uh, I think it's yeah. kind of impossible to uh, have consumed too much Dragon Ball fiction as we all have and not look at them and think, oh, they, they look kind of similar to the Bojack gang from Dragon Ball Z Movie 9. They wind up being distinct, and I think you kind of forget that comparison as you read onward. But yeah, at first glance, they their whole blue-skinned pirate getup sure does uh, recall them. They're fine. I think they're fine. I like Maki's <laughs> design a lot. I like Alex's design. Um, yeah, they're all right. I, I would probably not peg them for Toriyama designs, uh, but that's that's okay. Yeah, I, the other thing I want to mention about Granola is uh, there were multiple interviews where Toyotaro, when talking about his character design, would mention his like desire to create an Ikiman, uh, like a handsome character design, uh, a handsome mm-hmm. male character. I think it came up when he was talking about Shirasu for the Dragon Ball, uh, Super Dragon Ball Heroes uh, home port uh, world mission. Yeah, he designed yeah. the villain for that game who's this like chiseled jaw squid hair man. Uh, that was his <laughs> yep, first yep. noted attempt at an Ikiman or like handsome man design. Uh, he also brought it up when he was talking about Merisu from the Moro arc. Uh, and I don't mm-hmm. think he ever quite hit it. I, I think Granola might be, might be his, uh, his successful handsome man design. He, he finally, he finally <laughs> gave us that, that handsome man he'd always been striving for. So I, I just want yeah. We got there. I, I feel like when you talk about characters and designs, I immediately go over to also um, Monaito. Uh, I guess that's going to be the localization we go with for that name, although there's arguments for, for other stuff there. Um, but then that immediately takes us into Namekians. And if you want to talk about Namekians, this, this arc, you have to talk about lore. Um, Ken, something we talked about with the Moro arc was just how fast and loose Toyotaro played with stuff um but then knowing that this is a toriyama draft and that toyotaro doesn't always feel comfortable kind of playing with this sacred kind of stuff whereas toriyama's like i don't care we'll just do whatever we want i mean we've got namekians coming from another realm (laughs) apparently to universe seven um not originally going to planet namek and uh, splitting off and we've got this other dude with his own set of dragon balls and they don't have a reactivation time you can just go use them again um just go get them um toriyama's going back to the bardock well uh, again here 
I kind of don't know what the question is to set up this next part of a conversation, but it's just the Dragon Ball lore that no one seems to care about yet at the same time like can't stop explaining the specifics of it um i have this working theory that akira toriyama and stephen king are actually the same person um and do the exact same stuff just in completely different mediums and this is another of uh, i think those um exact parallels um so i'm just gonna leave it there someone please 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 talk to me about the the fast and loose lore here in this arc yeah mike we finally opened up the namekian book of legends you know we're <laughs> yeah, getting we into have. it yeah. we're learning more you know these are a group of people who came from an unknown place landed on different planets planet yeah. namek and serial and who, maybe there's a guy on zune hanging out where the pui pui guys can't see him you know who knows what's going on with the Namekians? And that's why this is like from day one of Super when they started talking about the Namekian Book of Legends. God, tell me as much as you can about them. They're such a mysterious people. They have these, these crazy wizard powers. They create these dragons and these balls and each one is different. And we've got Toronbo now from uh-huh. Hurunga, from Shenlong, from uh, Super Shenlong. I don't know if he ever got another name. There's still isn't there like still the mysterious guy who created the super Shenlong out there or we got Zalama stuff to do at some yeah. point. Sure, sure. So throw as much of this at me as you can. Uh, I'll eat it up. And then, you know, we, we see more playing with the room of spirit and time here mm-hmm. from those things that were introduced last arc with yep. Merusu. It's just, yeah, fast and loose with the lore. I, th- that's how I felt it was last arc. But now that he kind of like tipped over the box of Legos and they're all on the floor. <laughs> now he's picking them up and creating interesting things with them. Yeah, I feel like if anything, last arc was maybe a little restrained on that front. Um, we did have the yeah. additional room of spirit and time, which I thought was interesting. So we know that there are other ones out there on different planets with their own time relationships with the outside world. Um, we did get new lore about the angels um, and a little bit more about uh, I guess Yardrat, if that counts, just fleshing out what had happened there with Goku's training. Um, but otherwise, not a whole lot of like new world-changing content. And the, I think the interesting thing about the Granola arc, maybe we'll get into this as we talk about like, the structure of the arc, but it's this really yeah. small, self-contained story in comparison to, say, the Moro arc, or really any other arc of Super. It's very small scale in what its plot and conflict is, but it crams in all of these weird bits of lore and, like, cosmos expanding pieces so yeah we have the the bit about the namekians coming from outside universe 7 new set of dragon balls uh new powers for everyone more rooms of spirit and time uh major backstory changes for goku and this all comes in this tight little story so there's this weird effect where it feels like while you're reading back through it like a lot of things are being introduced and changed and happening at at the same time like the story doesn't move a whole lot it's it's really like one encounter it's it's set up and set up an action. It's this quiet, or not quiet, this small little two-act story. Um, so I think that relationship is is interesting. Like, it feels like a lot's happening or being introduced while not a lot is happening. I think this arc felt much more like a movie retelling than, yeah, yeah. than anything. Like you said, it's a small, self-contained story. It's really only Goku and Vegeta. You have cameos from, I, I even wrote it out here, Bulma, Chi-Chi, Galactic Patrol, Prisoners, Mora, Mori, <laughs> And Eska, and then yeah. you have Beerus, Whis, Bardock, and Frieza all playing different uh, roles in the story as well. Uh, but beyond that, it's very few characters we know uh, going on kind of very quick adventure. There's really only two big, I guess it's three big brawls. There's the first one with Granola, 
then there's the first bout with with gas and then the second bout with gas. And I have a bout of, with gas right now. So l- l- let me ask about the action choreography in all that for a little bit. Um, I feel like something we're always talking about, like, oh, has Toyo Taro's artwork improved? What is his paneling like? Uh, I actually really want to call out the, the most recent reread I did today on um, Granola versus Super Saiyan God Goku. For some reason, that really got me this time. Just something about the the action and, and the flow of that fight and the facial expressions. Uh, I feel like that was one area where he, he really got me, and it, it felt perfect. In terms of action, Toyotaro is at the top of his game right now. I started the art. When I started my reread, I started at 65, which is the beginning of volume 15. So it's mm-hmm. the last two chapters of Moro. Sure. Yeah. Which is yeah. some of the most incredible stuff in that entire arc uh, with the Ultra Instinct versus Ultra Instinct fight. Yeah. And how that's when Toyotaro kind of unleashed and said, like, oh, I'm comfortable with doing one panel pages. Yeah. Which he hadn't really done before. And so his understanding and comfortability working around a page now is top notch. His art and like uh, anatomy. I mean, Toriyama knew how to break anatomy in the right ways. Um, Toyotaro knows how to break anatomy. I don't know if he knows how to do it. <laughs> we still well. got those sliding necks every once in a while. As far as the action in this arc, I'm going to agree that this is probably the best we've seen from Super. Um, I think there are multiple candidates in this storyline that I would pull out for my favorite fights visually, just as far as how fun it is to read them. One of my issues with Toyotaro's action had been a missing sense of speed in a lot of cases. Um, mm. People tend to call out his overpaneling in terms of adding unnecessary reaction shots, which he, he does do here and there. But I think the more detrimental thing that he would do would be uh, he tends to like in between movements a lot more than Toriyama would. Toriyama's like choice of moments to show is very Spartan. Like, he'll show one action and then cut to another one. And you understand, because he's so talented, like, you understand what the flow between those two actions is. Uh, But he doesn't show you, like, someone mid-punch throw or, like, mid-kick extension. Uh, The the movements are just happening in the panel already. Toyotaro does a lot more of those in-between movements, which have the effect of... The action is really clear. I'm never confused by what's happening, but it feels slow. Um, and mm. I think that's something he really overcomes this arc. He does it here and there. He, he has a couple of other pitfalls. Um, one of them is like breaking the, the 180 rule in like film on some of his actions. So there are shots where uh, this is really specific, but I'm looking at page 66 in volume 17, I think right now, which is uh, Granola versus Vegeta uh, in Super Saiyan Blue. And Granola punches him down a river and then the angle changes and you see Vegeta being pushed away. And it, it's like hard to readjust what you're looking at there. Uh, it feels like if he'd kept a consistent angle on Vegeta flying down this river, it would have felt faster and easier to keep track of. He has those, like he has his over, what, what should I say here? He's successful, I think, in a lot of the action here in showing more movement than Toriyama would, but not losing the speed. So some of my favorite fights in this arc, Vegeta versus Granola, especially once Ultra Ego comes into play. Uh, Goku versus Gas is great um, after Granola versus Gas, and Granola versus Gas is also great. Um those just the movements when gas is like bouncing away and, and throwing the shuriken at him or uh, gas popping up behind Goku with the hammer uh, in that one part. Just a lot of characters doing like sudden quick movements without these uh, overly uh, detailed, like in between bits of movement. Um, there's another bit that I want to call out where in the first chapter of Ultra Ego Vegeta versus Granola, uh, Granola is shot up in the air. He flips around in the top of the page and is aiming his fingers down to shoot toward the ground. And then Vegeta just appears behind him and clocks him in the back of the head with a knee. And that sequence feels 
so fast and it's just so snappy. And, and we're getting a lot more of that uh, in the action in Super now. You know, one other thing I want to call out, uh, last time on the Morrow review, we talked a lot about the the format of it being monthly and 45 pages and needing to end on the cliffhanger and that it would sometimes feel like we had the same amount of content as a 14 page chapter, but spread out over these 45 pages. And I want to call out chapter 73. It's Granola versus Blue Goku. There's actually 12 pages before there's any substantial dialogue. It's all just fighting and flying around and stuff. And that for me brought to mind a, a recent chapter of Yoshitaka Nagayama's Super Dragon Ball Heroes um, Ultra God Mission over in Psycho Jump, where I think I tweeted about this. So there's something like 20 pages with zero dialogue. Was it Jiren versus Bardock or Broly or something like that. Um, and it reminded me of that where I thought it was super neat over in that manga, but then over here, it was just like, all right, we're flying around, we're doing stuff. And I feel like Toriyama would have just gotten to the point there, but maybe Toriyotaro doesn't have that, um, that benefit of doing so here. And I, I can't think of any previous arc or fight where there's been something that long without any dialogue. There would always be someone chiming in. Um, Therese brought this up on the more review. Like Goku's always saying some stupid dialogue and like, it actually kind of felt out of character that he would just like yap, yap, yap during the middle of stuff. Um, but those 12 pages, they stuck out to me. This arc more than any other, I think does feel like what would have been a weekly chapter in Dragon Ball has been extended into a 40-page monthly chapter in Dragon Ball Super. And it has its pros and cons. Um, the pros are that we're getting these really great action sequences, and I'm not sure if I'm not sure if it would find time to do them in the same way otherwise, but yeah, I think especially the the TV adjacent arcs of the Super Manga really felt like three chapters of Dragon Ball smushed together, sometimes more, um, as far as their pacing. And uh, at this point, it really does, going back to Dragon Ball, uh, what would have been one chapter there as far as the balance of like action and development and then a cliffhanger, um, the same type of content is extended over these 40-page chapters here. Yeah, in rereading this arc, this is not the same manga that I read month to month. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, we touched on that with Moro, too, about how much, how different of a, an experience it is working through Toyotaro's to uh, storytelling as one go rather than on month to month. Because I know with this arc, especially in some of the gas fights, it was like, okay, well, we're doing this fight, not a whole lot's happening. And yeah, there's some action and it was cool. I'll see you next month. But yeah. going through this in one go, it's just, I didn't feel that at all. Everything felt like it was happening at a proper clip. And you, when I was reading it, I'd read like four chapters before bed. And then I'd be like, oh, I kind of just want to stay up and keep reading this. Hmm. I totally different manga it's really interesting because i mostly felt that same way so i've reread or i should say i've read this arc four times once was month to month once was i think before the final chapter or two came out i reread everything ahead of that last chapter i've read the entire thing last week and then i read the entire thing again like two hours before we started recording and each time it was a wildly different experience when i read it last week i was kind of with you ken where it was yeah let, i just keep going this is great and then earlier today i got up to when gas powered up the the gas powered up fight that was kind of my breaking point earlier today whereas i i gotta just be done at this point i think some of that's on you for <laughs> well sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
Um, yeah, as far as my reading experience, I read it month to month in the magazine. Uh, I read each volume as it came out in black and white, and then I would read them again when they came out with the digital colorized version. Um, so mm-hmm. I built up to multiple rereads through that. And then uh, the other week I went through it in just about one sitting start to finish, which was the first time I'd done that since it ended. And yeah, quite a different experience. I do feel like it reads differently in serialization versus in one go. Yeah, in serialization, there, there were a lot of oddities. Um, so the setup for this is quite extended. We have six chapters of basically all exposition sort of building up to a fight. And I think that yeah. led people, myself included, to believe that this would be a really expansive, long storyline. Rereading it, knowing that that's not the case, that all seems fine. Like, I'm, I'm completely fine with that pacing. But the expectations there versus what it was actually planned to be, I think, threw a lot of people for a loop. Um, and it made it made the fight chapters and later chapters harder to interact with in serialization because we kept waiting for it to get to the next act of the story or, or we wanted to find out where this like grand storyline was going. And I think... Knowing that it is this small scale, uh, it reads a lot better. Yeah, as far as the pacing, I feel like because these 40-page chapters are structured in a similar way to, say, a 15-page chapter in Dragon Ball, like the chapter-to-chapter experience when you're reading in one sitting is is fine. Like, I feel like things are constantly happening. Yeah, things are happening at a good clip. The cliffhangers are coming in at the right place. Uh, The action to develop, like, action to dialogue balance is fine. It's all just blown up a little bit. Um... But yeah, it reads fine in one sitting. I still have some pacing issues with it here and there, especially regarding the use of flashbacks. But uh, in general, knowing the scope and structure of the arc, I felt like I was thoroughly entertained uh, the entire time in my single sitting read. Well, you totally did the transition for me. I did want to talk about flashbacks X, and there is tons of flashback material, which is told through these interesting black background pages. Uh, I've read a lot of criticism that this feels more at home in, and I have this in quotes, modern series like One Piece and Naruto, which are not modern series, but as an old man, they are the most modern shonen I have read. Um, what, how does it feel, uh, and fit here compared to real Dragon Ball from Toriyama in terms of this like extended flashback storytelling material and tactic? The first flashback we get is really weird, um, because it's seemingly told through Monaito's lens, but Mm. then we get Bardock's inner thoughts, which even on Riri didn't feel right to me going through that. It's... I don't mind a flashback uh, and I'd rather have them in these kind of short little bursts that we got here versus every time one piece introduces a new character, we find out how tragic their life is over the course of three months of manga. So if we're going to do it, let's do it short and keep it sweet. Um, So this is okay. But yeah, Dragon Ball was never a flashback manga and I don't can't even think of one from the original series that would have been in. Anything that comes to mind in terms of like iconic flashback stuff is TV series footage. Like I, I think of the insert song Mind Power and Trunks kind of going down that off-colored area and him looking back like that's that's a television tactic as opposed to a Toriyama tactic. Yeah, I think every time the original Dragon Ball does something that could even possibly be called a flashback, it's like one panel. Like there'll be like a one panel illustration to indicate that someone is talking so Bar- about namely Bardock. <laughs> yeah, Bar- Bardock that happens for um Pic- Piccolo Daimao's backstory as well when uh Kamisan and his Kamisan, yeah, he's first revealing the the backstory of Piccolo Daimao. I think we get one panel that shows a silhouette of Piccolo Daimao and it just says, "Oh, this demon king lived 300 years ago. We fought against him." And that's all you get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does anyone can you read Boruto? 
Yes, I do. I love Boruto. <laughs> does does it feel like that? I, I don't know how to even ask that question. I've seen, um, especially when we got giant spirit Goku at the end of the last arc, people like, that's ah, just ripping off the Naruto things. Is this Toyotaro kind of just being our age and watching that stuff and ripping from it and its tactics? No, the stuff that happened with the big, uh, I guess, chakra <laughs> beings in Naruto was quite different than that and hasn't really happened in Boruto. It was, yeah, the basic idea of a like a big energy kaiju self is there, but it's it's implemented differently. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't even say that it was such a brief thing in Naruto that I wouldn't say that that was any kind of like major influence. So is flashback stuff just... That's just what they do these days? Or is it something that you think someone's really invested in doing and feel strongly about? If it's a storytelling tool you got, use it, I guess. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) All right, sure. I think it's fair game. I think one thing be intended to break up the main action, like uh, they're positioned in a way Mm. that the the long Bardock flashback falls between rounds one and two with gas. And so it feels like it's meant to be sort of our interlude, right? Like the, the material that comes between round one and the rematch. Uh, my only issue with it, I guess, is that it doesn't really function in the same way that actual downtime chapters would because they're still mostly action-based and we're not in the present, so it doesn't feel like mm-hmm. our present storyline is going anywhere. Um, so for that reason, the pacing around those does feel a bit odd and it maybe doesn't quite fulfill the role of break that it was meant to. Um, I, I yeah. think the content of them is just fine. Maybe they run a little long... Uh, the action in them is not a particular highlight, I don't think, but it's it's fine. Uh, there are some content choices in them that I like, which maybe we'll talk about later. As far as pacing with the flashback chapters, my only issue, and I'll just call this out really specifically, is the long flashback with Bardock. We begin and end one entire chapter in flashback, which really did get me on a serialized read. It was like, oh, man, I really want to see what we're doing back in the present. That was when it felt a little long in the tooth to me. And even coming back for single sitting reads the the chapter break there feels like a misstep because um, we we have Goku remembering his parents at the beginning of this flashback. We spend an entire chapter there and then we don't come back to Goku until the following month. So it's been like two months real time or two chapters since we saw him have that first reaction to remembering his parents. And it feels like the interesting stuff there is really happening in the present and we're spending so long away from it and, and spending a whole cliffhanger without getting back to it that that feels a little bit odd um, even now. But yeah, that's that's as much as I really have to say as a like a negative about it. Uh, I want to stick with Bardock for a bit. Uh, he's such an important part of this arc, which is certainly not something I expected going into more Dragon Ball Super. Um, I feel like it kind of ties back to a, a now older Oishi Toriyama interview where Oishi asks if we'll ever see Bardock again. Toriyama's like, nah, you know, he's dead and he's not that strong. So unless we get flashbacks. It's like the stuff that Toriyama says in in these interviews will come back again. You don't know if it's going to be in next year's movie or in a story arc in a decade's time. But it just boggles my mind that this stuff is kicking around in his head somewhere. Um, it reminds me a lot of the way the folks describe uh, Shigeru Miyamoto and ideas for Mario games where they'll, they'll plug away at something in a game and discard it and then you'll come to find out that something you played 20 years later actually started in some old game that they never quite finished and Bardock's back again in flashback footage and maybe he's not that strong but maybe he is a little strong. 
again, I don't know where to take the the Bardock discussion here. Uh, it's just the the same conversation as it's kind of been since Dragon Ball Online, an episode of Bardock, where it's is this the same Bardock? Does Toriyama have the right to assassinate the perfect evil Koyama Bardock from forever ago? Um, I mean, we could kick that dead horse until there's truly nothing left. So with that in mind, let's kick that dead horse a little bit more, Ken. I think it's okay to have a bad character have a good moment. You know, my favorite bad <laughs> okay. guys are the guys who who sometimes will team up with the heroes, you know, in, in comic books and, and whatnot. Sinestro does that a lot. But you've got a Bardock here who is good for reasons even he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And then that same Bardock, to- Toyotaro makes like a crucial mistake here. Yeah. In that he opens this Pandora's box of drawing a visual connection between Ultra Instinct Goku <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. and Bardock from 40 years ago. Right. In which their aura is the exact same style and their hair is shaded in a very deliberate way. And yeah, I saw an article about this on comicbook.com actually confirming of course, that. You know, that yeah. was, I wrote it under my pen name. Uh-huh. But. Uh, that's not true. I would never. <laughs> but it's just Bardock is, in my opinion, the hands down the worst part of this. Every page he's on, every element that connects to him could have been done much better in a much more concise way. He's not needed. His impact in what happens with Goku and his, well, I'll just use my emotions with Ultra Instinct isn't clearly explained. And no. I'm ants team hashtag anti Bardock comment below if you agree. So I'm going to have to get at this in a few different ways. Um, So the first, I guess, lens on this, the first scouter lens I'll I'll put over this is just use of Bardock as an existing character and a fan favorite (laughs) character. Um, If I never see him again, that's fine with me. If I never see him again, it would be too soon, right? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of just bringing characters in because there's existing love for them. Uh, That definitely goes for like ancillary characters like Bardock or, or Broly. Um, but even characters in the series, like I never want to see Yamcha again if he has nothing to do. Um, I, just, I just want to see like characters that the storyline is interested in and that feel organic. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I, I don't need Bardock to be there. Um, but also in that sense, I feel like he actually has something to do here. So as I'm saying that, this is also probably, uh, I don't know, uh, like TV special Bardock is fine too, but... This is the most interesting that like manga Bardock or, or Toriyama's concept of Bardock has ever been, just in the sense that it's the first time he's ever been a character at all. Um, so I'm fine with that. Like if they want to make him a character and he feels organic to the story, it's fine. Put him in. Um, I think they are largely successful at doing that here. Um, yeah, you do have a sense that he is, I guess. Okay, so the second sense is, is or second lens is Bardock's role in the story. I think it's it's fine. So uh, we do have a sense of who he is, right? He's this, he's not a good person. He's definitely in hell right now. Um, but he's this genocidal space pirate who is touched enough to, by his first meeting with his new son and, and going back and seeing his wife to spare someone on a whim. And then I think Toyotaro does a good job in the pages of, through his expressions and through his dialogue, showing that, yeah, he doesn't understand why he's doing this. He's not a good person. He just sort of gets caught up in a moment and is then a wrong, along for the ride after that, right? He is slowly sucked more and more into this scenario that's getting out of hand. 
Um, and I think that balance is well maintained. You, it never feels too saccharine or too sappy. There's a line that a lot of uh, English readers uh, sort of picked up on where Monai- Monaito talks about the good in his heart. And I do want to call out there, uh, there's a little bit lost in translation. The original dialogue uh, has him more specifically say that they've been saved by the good that is sprouting in his heart or the good that has started to take root in his heart. So there's not so much of an exoneration for him there. Monaito, Monaito is just grateful that he had this whim in this moment and was able to save someone. He's hopeful that that could happen again in the future. So I think his the balance around his character is well handled um, and that registers for me and that works well. As far as why he's ultimately here, I, th- I guess you have to kind of work backward from the ending, which is he's there for Goku, right? Goku is the main, Goku is our main arc here, or he's one of the main character arcs. Uh, everyone has their own little one, but he's trying to get a better grasp of who he is as a martial, art, a martial artist to help develop Ultra Instinct and sort of come more to terms with himself and these disparate elements of his past. So Bardock's real role is helping remind Goku of who he is and what works for him and how to tap into a little bit of his grip, his grit and emotion um, as he moves forward with, you know, as a martial artist at this point. And I think that works. Do we need as much Bardock to get to that as we get? I, I don't think so. I, I think I agree with Ken that you could reduce his role in the story significantly. Um, you could handle all of the the flashbacks in a more concise way, and it would still work for what his purpose in the story is. Um, so in that sense, yeah, it feels like they run a little long and they're there because, hey, you know and love Bardock. So it's a push-pull. Uh, I think what we get works. And I think if I, yeah, I, I guess if I, if I tried to break it down at the end, I'm, I know I'm rambling a little bit here. If I read this having no idea that Bardock was a character outside of this comic, would I feel like the the flashbacks were oddly mm. paced? And I feel like I would a little bit. His role works well enough that I would understand why he's there. It wouldn't feel super jarring, but I might have that little like inkling of, uh, why why are we spending so much time with this guy? Was was that really necessary? Um, so I think, yeah, that's that's the push push pull there. So yeah, I like what we get. I, I could have done with Bless, and I never need to see him again unless there's a compelling reason. Let's go away from Bardock for a while. Uh, let's talk about some of these uh, main yes. characters. <laughs> we have Goku and Vegeta. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the dynamic of Goku and Whis versus Vegeta and Beerus. I think there's some great elements there. Um, Beerus is also one of those characters that I feel like Toyotaro just loves drawing. He's got those little grins and looks to the side. He, he nails them there. Uh, the scene of, of Beerus walking away being like, you know, if you happen to come follow and watch and see something interesting, you know, by all means, uh, there are some bits there between them that are just absolutely golden. Um, that panel is so good. The character acting in the Beerus yeah. scenes is great. That panel especially. Yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about our respective duos here. I really love Beerus getting involved because he, it's almost like he's jealous that, yeah. of what the connection that Whis and Goku are getting and sure. yeah, the yeah. way he's taking Vegeta by the hand and being like, okay, you know, you and I, we both have our own attitudes about things, but we're, we both secretly want to work together and, and, and develop this relationship. And, you know, when I I wrote three pages of notes here (laughs) when I was going through things. And when I finished writing everything, I still didn't have a good lock on ultra ego and, and how Vegeta gets to that point. And he says, uh, to Granola, he says, a god of destruction taught me that power derived solely from instinct is unbounded. And I'm like, where does, wherever is that said? And so then I go back earlier, specifically today, with a pen, and I'm going through the Beerus chapters looking for it. And Beerus does actually spell this all out extremely early on in the arc. And both, 
you know, to go to the relationship of, that both sets of these characters have, they're so rich and they're so developed by this point in uh, t- almost 10 years of storytelling stop, with Mies and Beerus <laughs> that we we know how how rich everything is between them and Weiss and Beerus both set up everything mm-hmm. for Goku and Vegeta and the journeys they take through this entire arc that is all set up in the first few chapters with them for detail of Weiss being like I'm an angel I'm always doing this you're not right. you got to find your own way uh, Vegeta being like hey you need to get everything out of your head and you need to just think about destruction uh, if you want to ever be like me and have these powers that I have, and that's what Vegeta gets to do when he's fighting Granola and being like, oh, my family's not here. I can just go wild. And so all this stuff is set up perfectly. And it's just, I don't think you could have ever done this until we're, I guess at that point would have been seven or eight years down the line with with Whis and Beerus, who just, who feel like, how did we have Dragon Ball without them? Yeah, I agree. They're really, one thing that the Super Manga has always done well is I think it has really tight focus on what the themes of its storylines are. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Ken was pointing out, everything that Vegeta and Goku are struggling with in the climax of the arc is something they talk about with Whis and Beerus. So Goku's struggling to find his own path forward as he's using these angel techniques, and Vegeta sort of suffering under the burden of not just his own guilt, but taking on everything the science ever did. Um, and Beerus is telling him to get that out of his head and focus on destruction. Um, there's a the revelation that Beerus uh, had a hand in Planet Vegeta's destruction, and that's part of him getting at, you know, it's not fate that you need to, you don't need to feel like you, you have all this weight of fate on your shoulders. It's all about people making their own decisions. Yeah, as I like all that as, as set up. Um, and I like that Vegeta doesn't fully get there as well. Like he, he attempts to clear his head and think only of destruction, but he uh, has that moment at the end of the fight with Granola where he says, I, I couldn't really revert to that. Like, that's not who I am either. He's not able to be that callous. And I, I think all of that nuance, I, I, it's not super deep, right? This is still Dragon Ball. But sure. I think <laughs> the character development in this arc, uh, it's all focused around the martial arts development at its core. That's the type of story it is. But I think it's really coherent um, and it's easy to track and, and satisfying to see play out. And it comes out in, I think, well-characterized ways. Um, so yeah, that all comes back to the Beerus and Whis chapters. Uh, that's well set up. And I like the rivalry as well. Um, I love Whis also pointing gas back in the direction of the main yes, characters yes, toward yes. the end of the arc. I think there's this constant problem, right? Fans love to bring this up of, oh, what are the stakes with these two around? Because they can always just jump in and save the day. Um, I think this arc makes a good use of them uh, where they're not there to save anyone. This there, there are not stakes high enough for them to need to step into. They're just sending their two disciples out on a, a training mission, essentially. And they've got their own... Uh, sort of skin in the game as far as who they're rooting for and have been training. Um, I think that's really successful. It, it feels like Resurrection F in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, structurally, this feels like a movie as well. We've noted that it has the two-arc structure, a really self-contained storyline. Uh, Toriyama really seems to like this kind of small-scale story and structure for Super. Um, but yeah, it feels like their role there where the threat... I mean, ultimately, we know that it's all kind of this comedy of errors with the way it ends. But yeah, they're they're just kind of... There is these, uh, they're, they're like placing bets on who's going to do better. And it's a good way to uh, keep them involved without ruining the tension there as well. The only other thing I want to bring up with regards to these characters is, and I did this both most recent rereads was, ah, oh, it's another arc of Goku and Vegeta not fighting together. Then we get to the end and they actually do start fighting together. And I never remember that part until I actually get to <laughs> the end of it. Um, 
But it's it's very weird at the same time because we have this kind of like surrounding placement with Moro going on, with the Broly movie happening, with superhero kind of after this where they're kind of removed. But uh, we, we've talked a lot about in, in Super of them kind of like relitigating the same plot points over and over. Uh, and I feel we had a little bit of that, but they ultimately do kind of get there. The characters figure out finally maybe what it is they want to do with themselves maybe vegeta doesn't though it's like we said he he kind of gets to the end there and it, and it doesn't work out exactly in his favor so i'm curious where they will go in terms of destruction <laughs> power and and vegeta's all out stuff um, well they they do actually already address that in this arc um i th- the way i read into it was that after they listened to the bardock recording both goku and vegeta take something away from Bardock saying something to gas about uh, like what matters now is victory. Like who would, who would ever go into a fight thinking of anything other than victory or something like that. And that's what Vegeta repeats back to. um, He says, it's got nothing to do with our odds of victory. What drives us now is the sheer desire to win. Mm. Uh, And this is in also in context of him talking about how his ultra ego is evolving and how he pushes Goku to have his evolve too. So I think in, in some ways they have already addressed that. And Vegeta has already kind of like shifted his, his uh, line of sight with where he's going with his power. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Ken, that reminds me of something you were talking about with um, the single page panels. There's one towards the end where it's like this kind of like vertical horizontal yeah. shot downward and Goku's in Ultra Instinct, yep. Vegeta's in yeah. Ultra Ego. And it's, that's so good. Yeah, that's some <laughs> yeah. good stuff. Um, Ian, you already kind of mentioned uh, I, we the old term was the visisms. I, I hesitate to use that these days because we have a extremely talented translator on the series and in the form of Caleb Cook and and we don't have as much uh, kind of editorial influence that we know of in terms of kind of like in the weeds on the translation stuff like we did with the rewrites back in the day. Um, but you did mention the one thing about the 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 goodness uh, sprouting in Bardock's heart. Can I throw Ultra Ego by you? Because well, you also kind of called it before it actually happened in terms of a translation for it. Can can you walk us through what the the name of this form is? Oh, okay. All right. We can do a little aside on this, um, especially if it hasn't been discussed on the show before. Um, so yeah, Goku uses Ultra Instinct, which in Japanese is uh, Migate no Gokui. So Migate, I think this has been dis- explained multiple times on the show, but Migate is a word for selfishness or capriciousness in Japanese. A little bit of a formal way of saying that, not used very often today. Kateni is used, um, but Migate means selfish. Uh, and it's also constructed out of kanji that can be read as like body moving on its own. So that's the the pun or sort of the double meaning that's going on there. Uh, and then Vegeta developing his technique calls it Wagamama no Gokui. So the Gokui is just mastery or like technique. That's the same. Wagamama is another phrase in Japanese for selfishness. Uh, but this, the form of selfishness it is, is a little bit different. So Migate is more like doing whatever you want without caring about the impact on other people. And Wagamama is like forcing other people to do what you want. So it's being demanding. And it also has a little bit of a double entendre if you want to read into its kanji. It's wagamama, which there's like sort of like as as I am or like my own will being built into the, the kanji construction there. Um, so there are multiple ways in which ultra ego kind of makes sense uh, in relationship to ultra instinct in English then. Um, so instinct is like 
uh, migate. It's like doing whatever you want, right? It's just reacting without overthinking things. So it's similar in that vein. And then ego is, right, like forcing your will on other people or, or being aware of your own actions, right? And, and being demanding in that sense. So in that sense, they pair well, um, both with each other in English and with the Japanese. And then there's also this element in Japanese of one-upsmanship. So, okay, if Goku is migate, I'm wagamama. So he's He's just not thinking, but I'm I'm going a step further. I'm being demanding, um, and in that sense, you also have the wordplay in English of like this this idea of like different levels of like awareness. So you have like id, ego, super ego. Um, so you can say instinct is kind of id. It's this basic like your basic wants, sort of your unconsciousness, and then ego is your conscious desires, your conscious demands. So you sort of have a step up there, a one upsmanship in terms of the, the like levels of awareness they're identifying as well. Um, so for multiple reasons, um, I think alter ego is a sound choice coming off of the Japanese and in relationship to alter instinct in English and the way those two Japanese names work with each other. Um, so yeah, all around, I think it's just a good way of adapting that given the existing presence of alter instinct. Hopefully that made sense. That was a lot to throw out there. No, it. It, what I want to remark on is that it's a really concise translation, uh, especially as someone who is catching up through One Piece. And we have these phrases being tossed out, depending on which translation you're reading, as something like the color of the Supreme King. And then sometimes they talk about hockey or just willpower itself. And there are a million different ways to phrase these things. And... You know, not even necessarily about the consistency of the translation, but just condensing it all down to something that comes across and makes sense, like instinctively, as opposed to like really reading these million words. And I feel like they are kind of long in Japanese, like Wagamama no Gokui isn't Super Saiyan. Yeah, it's a little bit longer. I just, it, I'm enjoying thinking about One Piece. <laughs> How you still have, you still have Wano ahead of you, so do, you don't even do. know. <laughs> it just made me think of that. It's the current parallel for me. There's so much more we, we could talk about here. I have a couple more kind of like big hits on my conversation wish, wish list. Um, I want to talk two things about wishes. One is, well, I guess we finally have an answer to, can you just wish to be the strongest? In fact, not only can you do that, but someone else can do it immediately after you. All right. So that's done. Um, we've talked about Bardock. We're talking about wishes now. Uh, we've talked a little bit about not necessarily physisms, but translation quibbles. We have to talk about the wish there. And I, I hate to throw this at you again, but do you want to talk about Thrive a little bit? So, yeah, in the flashback chapter, uh, Bardock has the opportunity to make a wish to Torombo, the uh, Cerealian uh, dragon. Uh, and he winds up, he doesn't even believe that Monaito is actually going to make a wish on his behalf. He doesn't know what the situation is, but he wishes for his two sons to grow up. Uh, well, in Japanese, he says, Sukusukuto sodachimasu yoni, uh, which is basically to grow up like healthy and strong, not strong in the Dragon Ball sense, just like healthy and strong as you would use that in English. He wants them to grow up and be uh, just to, you know, grow up healthily into adulthood is the sense there. And so, yeah, that the implication is that that wish is actually made, although it's a little unclear. Yeah, I think I think the series lands on that wish being made. So he, if you take that at face value, yeah, he is making a wish that would help Goku and Raditz survive past childhood, at least. Mm -hmm. um, when you say, um, 
sodachi, uh, sodatsu is the base verb there, sodachimasu. It is really only used toward children growing up. So the implication from the Japanese is that he's just wishing for them to reach adulthood and be healthy and fine. He's, he's just wishing for his sons to grow up well. Um, as far as what the implications for the series there, I mean, there are a ton, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. It is worth noting that in the Viz version, in the next chapter, Vegeta does specify, you and Raditz survived when you were young, when you were young, because mm-hmm. of a wish on the Dragon Ball. So it even in the Viz version does clarify what Thrive actually meant. Yeah, we should maybe say what the English version says, right? So uh, what what is the English line on that? I wish that my sons end up thriving. Yeah, so I think people looked at thriving there, and it doesn't have an age connection in English, right? Yeah. Soldatsu, the verb in Japanese really implies just childhood. But I think people saw that initial English translation and thought, oh, does it mean that all of Goku's successes as an adult can be attributed to this wish too? Um, in Japanese, even at its most literal meaning, it would just be assistance through childhood. And I think, yeah, the translation used in the chapter there, it's a simultaneous uh, release in English. So it's kind of impossible to see what all the implications will be of each uh, translated line. I think the line in English makes perfect sense for that as dialogue in isolation. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe didn't quite uh, foresee how fans would interpret that, which is perfectly fine. Um, and then, as Ken noted, I think the opportunity is taken at the beginning of the next chapter to clarify more uh, what the actual intent behind the wish is and what the impact would be in English. Um, so just a little thing that slips through the cracks there. If you were reading it month to month in English, maybe you were taking implications from that line that were not meant to be there and that the English edition also clarifies at the beginning of the next chapter. Yeah, Troy Tower does this a lot. He'll clarify something like the first page of the next chapters. That seemed to be one of those. Um, translation issue aside, I, I guess it is you know, worth commenting on, okay, does Goku have like literal wish plot armor for his entire childhood there? And does that again relitigate the, all right, why is Bardock so special? Why is Goku so special? He was literally wished to be strong and healthy and nothing was going to defeat him as he grew up. Does that take away from his accomplishments over time? I don't know how I fall on that just yet. I, I have two ways of viewing that. Um, one, I kind of like it, or at least I, I don't have the same visceral negative reaction that I think a lot of people do. Okay. Um, as far as what that does for the story, it gives Goku a connection to the Dragon Balls before anything starts, which is kind of nice. I kind of like that. But it doesn't feel like it's too much of this faded thing mm. because it all stems back to Goku's influence on Bardock, right? Goku always has this unconscious uh, sort of way of improving everyone around him. And Bardock making this wish for Goku is the result of Bardock, this terrible person, seeing and being moved by Goku. So if anything, it's sort of this... This power to improve people in Goku has always been there. It's sort of this mystical property of him. And it winds up coming back and re-influencing his own life in kind of a neat way. I I don't hate that. I don't think it's necessary. But I think uh, if you're looking to add things and and surprise the readers with an ongoing sequel, I I kind of appreciate that being there. It feels like a risk-taking move, and I don't think too much is lost for it. So just on, on that front, I appreciate it that Super is still adding things that can surprise us and affect the storyline. I think that's nicer than just having it all feel like just entertaining fluff. Um, It ultimately is. But my one thing is as much as I can find ways to like that as an element sort of of the lore, I don't really know what it's doing in this storyline in particular. Mm. Um, Most of the other Bardock stuff comes back on the ending. Ken noted that uh, Goku and Vegeta are both able to take away lessons from the Bardock recording that 
allow them to get through that next level in their thinking and training. Um, but this really doesn't have that kind of storyline focused impact. So I don't know. I think it's okay. I think it's kind of interesting. It feels the most disconnected to the main storyline of this arc of maybe all the elements in it. Yeah. And if you look at Goku on his journey of growing up big and strong, I mean, the first like real threat he ever encountered was Piccolo. Sure. Beyond that were, I mean, the Red Ribbon Army were a bunch of jokes, (laughs) you know, and so... (laughs) Beyond that was a tournament and, and peel off, of course, is another joke. So, and did Goku ever really have any like major luck moments in that Piccolo arc? So to me, it's this again, with a lot of the bar uh, stuff uh, in this arc. Tal Pai Pai. He has a major, he has one major, like two um, major luck moments in, in yeah, Red Ribbon and uh, yeah. Piccolo Daimo arcs. I always forget about Tal Pai Pai. <laughs> <laughs> like literal Dragon Ball protection there. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Okay, it, I, it, but like with a lot of the Bardock stuff here, unnecessary, didn't need it. What is it adding? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think at most it kind of explains right, like why he survived against Piccolo Daimao, and maybe an additional explanation for being protected by the four star ball against Tao Pai Pai. And then you have this nice thing where it's like, oh, both of his father figures were sort of protecting him in that moment. Uh, the four star star ball representing uh, Grandpa Gohan, and then also the wish from Bardock. So. It's nice. It's cute. Um, it helps explain away some of the major contrivances. They didn't need that explanation, but it's fine. That's kind of its greatest impact. I don't know, it doesn't need to be here. I, I guess I would agree with, but it's okay. One of the last things that I want to hit up, and then I'm happy to explore anything else. I'm, I have a couple little things that maybe we can get into. Um, but I, I feel like we have to address the uh, Uchida comment from almost a year ago at this point. Um, saying that we're coming to a climax in this arc. That was last winter. Um, the, the most recent post we had on it was uh, a weekly Dragon Ball video, I think, back in January. And then we still ended up going more than half the year <laughs> with this story arc. Previously, when Uchida had mentioned a climax with the Moro arc, we only had one or two more chapters, and then we, we transitioned away. Um, Ian, as someone who's read a lot of Uchida's words, heard a lot of Uchida's words, do you think this was just um, an unfortunate misstep or a miscalculation or misspeaking in in some kind of way? Yeah, I would definitely say that was not a smart choice. Uh, I think introducing the idea of the the arc wrapping up so early impacted the way a lot of people interacted with the serialization. Yeah. because it felt like we were just waiting for it to end every chapter. And I think the way the gas fight goes, especially, it stuff is constantly happening. Like, I don't feel like those chapters are super badly paced as far as the action. Yeah, it, it made, it created this atmosphere where people were just waiting for it to wrap up, waiting for the next big development. And especially when that comment was dropped, we didn't even necessarily know we were in the climax of the arc. The fight with gas hadn't really started yet. So I think that took people by surprise, whereas maybe... The idea of that being the climax would have felt more natural if we'd read just another chapter or two. We would have been able to sort of suss out the structure of the arc a little bit better on our own. Um, Yeah, I just I don't feel like it did the serialized reading experience any favors. And it was definitely something that people were uh, that, that people were aware of while they were going through the end. And I think that's unfortunate. I would say letting this and its pacing play out on its own would have done it a lot more favors. Yeah, I didn't feel it at all in my rereads. In fact, I had almost forgotten about it entirely until I was going back and just looking at some sources on things. I had totally forgotten about it until (laughs) like a few hours ago when I was listening to past podcasts to refresh for this one. 
Yeah, so it's like an unfortunate piece of um, like a place in time kind of thing, but I think it'll ultimately have no real lasting impact on on this story. Uh, and then we got to an unprecedented hiatus. Um, before we get to that, is there anything else that anyone else wants to talk about with this arc? I have a couple little things. I, I saw a parallel between something like Moro powering up Sagambo versus Alec powering up Gas here at the end again. Felt like we did a little bit of a retread in there. Um, some other little retreads I didn't necessarily love. Um, what do y'all have for me? I have timeline frustrations, Mike. Okay. Walk me through it day by day. So in this arc, they're very clear about 40 years ago, 40 years ago. Yes. Uh, Which they actually corrected at some point on one dialogue, at least. There was a correction in the digital colorized edition only uh, for one of those timeline uh, speech bubbles. Yeah. Someone said 50 at some point. They changed it back to 40. So I think 40 is like the baseline we're going with here. Right. So if we... So uh, to get (laughs) into the weeds with people here. All right. So... 737, age 737, we're on the age calendar, which does have an equivalent to the Gregorian calendar, but I'm not going to get into that here, okay? (laughs) (laughs) So, I'm just saying Battle of Gods, which came out in 2013, would have been 2013 on the Gregorian calendar, just cool. Goku's born in 737, age 37. That has been a date for a long time since the Daizenshu. Yep. And uh, as recently, I know, as in volume 12 of the Omnibus editions, there's like a short little timeline in there. So, we've got up through 2016... That's two years before Broly. That's important. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that we're still keeping that as the birth date for Goku. Okay. So if we assume that, and again, we have to assume a little bit here about how long Goku was in that incubation pod for. Uh, I'm going to say not that long. Uh, so, okay. All this to say, the events with Bardock in the Granola arc probably took place really in a short period of time before Minus. Uh, there is a little bit where they show Gine in the house by herself for a little bit, but it's unclear how much time is passing. So for simplicity's sake, let's say that was also in 737. Okay, so if we know that Bra was born in age 780, uh-huh. that places the Tournament of Power in age 780. It's unclear how much time has passed after the Tournament of Power, after Broly, after Moro, though between Moro and Granola is probably an extremely short period of time, given the stuff with uh, right. 7-3. And then mm-hmm. we actually do have... I think a few months where uh, what's his name Goichi, not the fighters, yes, yes, player, but uh, Goichi has. Um, that's the only way I remember that is he has seven <laughs> three and he's like regenerating him. God, we okay, didn't so seven eighty. Okay, yep. So, so let's say seven eighty, seven eighty one, or seven eighty two is when this granola arc takes place. All right. So if we go forty years back from that, well, we're missing a few years here. You know, best case scenario, we're in seven forty. 40 years back from 780. So we're, we have a, a time gap of about 43 to 45 years, which is okay. Yeah, like if Mike, maybe if they're rounding around yeah. 40 years. Yeah. If I was going to tell you something happened to me 13 years, just talk, you and I talking, I might just round it to 10, but it's used in a narration bubble. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, me as a, a, of course I have to be wiki minded about this kind of stuff. It's really frustrating when we get kind of vague things like that, but it's okay. We can just assume maybe it's, being iffy. Okay, so now let's get into Broly, which is our most recent expression of the timeline. So in Broly, if we assume that Broly 780, 781 or 782, 41 years ago from that was when Frieza takes over. So that's 739, 740 or 741. Five years later, when Vegeta explodes, that's now 744, 745 or 746. 
assuming that the Bardock stuff happens in that year, 40 years later is now 784, 785, or 786, which is, of course, past Z. So I'm proud to tell you here we've made it past the end of Z. All right. Congratulations, everybody. (laughs) Blue Gi-1. So it's just frustrating stuff of they, you know. Well, probably fucked Let me in the dragon room and talk to someone. (laughs) We we can just ignore all the Broly timeline stuff, right? It's all wrong. None of this stuff is important for the average reader. No one is thinking like, no one is psychotic as I am. Don't say that. They're (laughs) going through this stuff. Absolutely are. I see Twitter citations talking about this stuff, referencing poorly spelled consensu misspellings all the time about it can you brought up seven three we haven't talked about seven three at all i i want to bring him up um because it seemed like a an important connective tissue at the beginning of this arc turned out to really be nothing went nowhere had no relevance to anything whatsoever uh i don't know if folks were really expecting like a a cyborg frieza into androids into cell kind of like perfect continuum here we certainly didn't get that anyone have any strong thoughts or feelings about seven three as a kind of like toss away here yeah i, I think it's one of the things because we have this continuing element from one arc to the next there were this yeah. linking element in seven three i think that is one thing that prepped people to expect this to be this really expansive storyline delving into all these different corners of the universe and and i think right. seven three being around in the background made people think that maybe he was going to come back for the finale. So as far as expectation setting, it probably didn't help the arc, right? It is this really self-contained small story. And I think it does really well with that once you know that that's what it's doing. But that was one of those things that maybe misled people as to what its scope and structure would be um, during the serialization. Uh, But as far as its actual use, once you understand where it's going, I think it's fine. Uh, I think at this point, we're just dealing with the... There's this hurdle of getting all the characters up to speed on who Goku and Vegeta are and how they're going to get the knowledge they need to combat them and get strong enough. And uh, 7-3 was just an expedient piece in this point. He was used for his information. He pointed the heaters, uh, he pointed the heaters to the Super Dragon Balls and Zuno, and that gave them the information they needed to kick off the rest of the arc. Um, It turns out that was his only role and it's a fine one, but uh, yeah, he may have set some uh, unfortunate expectations on the part of readers for for what the scope of the arc would be. It does his presence does briefly, you know, reacquaint us with the galactic control and showing us where all of the bad guys from the Moro arc ended up mm-hmm. in the galactic control um cuz they're like, "Hey, you know, did you got did you get that guy's head or or whatever?" Uh and then of course after that moment, we do get to see them again when they're making fun of Gas for having peed his pants at a young age, which is still like one of the best yeah, moments. Top five arc. moments in Dragon Ball period. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think there's that kind of uh, like lingering element of, oh, does he still have anything useful that he got from, say, Moro or Maris, which would be, uh, you know, potentially really powerful. And I think people were waiting for some payoff with that. Maybe if we just gotten one line about, oh, he doesn't have that anymore, right? He, but but he's still useful for his information. It could have helped uh, manage those expectations for his use a little bit more. But th- that's about as much as I have to say about it. Ken, I actually want to pick up a, a thread from the Moro review. Um, you mentioned back then that you were enjoying what Tarutaro was doing with Ultra Instinct and looking forward to what he does next. Um, something I only picked up on my fourth read was um, arriving to fight Granola. Vegeta turns Super Saiyan, but Goku stays normal. Like, of course, that's exactly what was going to happen there because they telegraphed to you that his whole point is he's trying to just find his own way to this instinct state. Um, how did Ultra Instinct pay out for you over the course of this arc? compared to your 
two-year-old expectations. Uh, oh, gee, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah, um, yeah. I like, I, uh, okay. I really love Ultra Instinct in this arc up to a point where it is Goku, because it's always been unclear. Is it a transformation? Is it a technique? And well, we find out, well, it explains it to you. Both. <laughs> yeah, but even then it's like, well, he does do some sort of transformation to trigger it. And then now he's using it in his base form and his, he's, uh, you know, closing his eyes, whereas Vegeta's eyes are open, and, and the way they even they the way they fly when yeah. they're both in their mm-hmm. different forms, Goku's arms are kind of out and still, and Vegeta's all clenched up. And yeah, yeah. It's cool up until a point until I get to the end, where Go- whatever Goku took away from Bardock is that he needs to use his emotions in the Ultra Instinct state, but the way that that is expressed to me is such a slapdash manner of Goku. Vegeta's like, hey, you got to up your game with Ultra Instinct. I'm over here, Ultra Egoing all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, get on my level. And Goku goes, okay, let me close my eyes. <laughs> oh, I'm on your level now. I figured it out. Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it, it's, uh, I'm not going to use the phrase people like to use about stuff when this happens. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, but it's just nonsensical and I do not like it. I, I like that it happens. I just, I needed a couple bits more of dialogue somewhere. And and Ian, maybe you can address this. Is that something that uh, might have gotten lost in translation of Goku's, what Goku is taking away from Bardock or if, or if I'm just completely reading that wrong? No, in that scene, there isn't anything more in Japanese. I, I do feel like it, uh, maybe it happens a little quickly in that scene in particular, but I feel like it's paying off on enough that works for me. Um, earlier in the arc, when Goku is fighting Gas, you have Gas's dialogue about Goku lacking the the spark of fighting instinct that Bardock showed, right? Because Goku is really struggling to remain emotionless for Ultra Instinct, right? And he's not thinking about just getting the job done and winning the fight, and that's what he and Vegeta take away from the Bardock recording. Um, so it's paying off on enough that it works for me, but that scene in particular, I can feel it feeling maybe a little bit rushed in the moment, um, how he actually makes that final leap toward it. Well, there's the whole bit of Goku passed out, and guess what? He's going a perfect Ultra Instinct, and the Kaiju's back. Yeah, well, like I said last time, it's going to be a first time for everything, and indeed, that was the first time. Here it is again, so you know, we have precedent. We Goku go big, end of fight. Let's go. But with what power? I mean, last time was because of Oob. What? I, I guess I just I needed more little bits here. Like what happens is fine, but I need. I need someone, Vegeta, like when Goku's using Ultra Instinct in his Super Saiyan state, Vegeta says specifically, uh, he says, Ultra Instinct becomes more accurate when used in conjunction with the Super Saiyan form. Boom, done. Now I get it. I get what's happening. I needed something like that for each of these two things. Hmm. I thought that was a very strange, I noticed that in each subsequent reread too. I thought it was very astute of Vegeta to, to notice that and to like explain it out to Goku. Uh, just one quick note, uh, as far as Toyotaro's depiction of Goku using Ultra Instinct in his lower forms, I think that's great, and, and I just want to give that a shout out. It's really clear when Goku is using Ultra Instinct in those yes. forms, and there are a lot of panels early on when they're first fighting Granola where Goku's method of dodging is contrasted visually against Vegeta's, like when they're dodging those initial blasts. I just think that comes across really well, and that's not an easy thing to do with the action presentation. It just occurred to us that we haven't talked about the villains like the main big strongest bad guys here kind of at all we talked about the design of the heaters and yeah whatever um all right i guess we gotta talk about gas a little bit as 
as an antagonist, kind of, but not really. I mean, Granola is really the antagonist for probably a good half of the arc, maybe the first third of it. Um, but ultimately, we get into this long, drawn-out battle with this little dude named Gas, who becomes a big dude, and then the scary old dying dude. Boy, I disliked Gas at the time <laughs> when we were reading month yeah. to month. I couldn't remember their names. Yeah, I couldn't. If you a gun to my head, I'd never know Oil or Mackie. But uh, but Gas, I think I liked him a lot more in this reread. And I think the moment when it happens is when they remind him that he peed his pants as a kid. Uh-huh. And from that moment on, he he, he plays into a gag. Uh, so that kind of endears me to him. Mm-hmm. And then as he, go, you know, Goku does his teleportation trick against him, which is, I think, one of the finest moments in all of Dragon Ball. Mm. Uh, one of the smartest techniques anyone's ever done. Uh, and which is surprising coming from Goku. But Gas from that moment on becomes more talkative. Yeah. Uh, he starts to have a little bit more of a character and how he's taunting his opponents. Uh, and then when everything starts to build up towards the end and Alec is like, you got to finish this freezes on his way. Uh, and gas finds out he's dying and he starts freaking that out. That moment that, that got me when he looks at the reflections, like I'm, I'm, I'm dying. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it. Yeah. It's just, I think gas at the time, couldn't stand him, but walking away from this arc in reread, Mike, I don't know, on your 17th reread, how you felt about him. <laughs> but me, I, I ended up really enjoying him as a character. I didn't, I wouldn't say I enjoyed him as a character, but I certainly didn't feel the strong feelings I did during serialization. Yeah, I, I like him. Um, I think he, he doesn't have the same presence that we would expect from maybe a Dragon Ball villain or a main yeah, antagonist, yeah. but I, I think that's fine as a change of pace. Um, given the scope of the arc and how sort of small scale it is and and how tight the story is. I think he's fine as this sort of surprise final physical antagonist. And he is quite sympathetic by the end. I agree. We we actually feel a little bit endeared to him. Um, Maybe his development comes up a little too late. I think there's more buildup that maybe could have been done uh, as far as his dynamic within the team and his dynamic with Granola. Just a couple of other scenes here and there to set us up uh, for the climax since he is carrying it to some extent. But yeah, what we get in there, I think, is, is really well-defined and well-done. I think Toyotaro does a really good job of giving him expressive like facial expressions, showing his like frustration with himself and the situation at various points. But everything is coming from the characters in this arc, right? Granola is out there because of his own motivations. He's the impetus for everything. Goku and Vegeta are out there because they want to be testing themselves and growing in this scenario. Even Beerus and Whis aren't just reacting. They're taking a more proactive stance and mentoring their, their protégés. Uh, the Hidas concoct this ultimately uh, disaster, this ultimate disaster of a scheme um, because of their own various motivations. And there are those different motivations within their own team and gases play into that. Um, so it's all really everything that happens in this arc is coming from some character's motivation and just the way those interact. Um, and gas is a piece of that puzzle for me. And I think, yeah, he plays that well, real that he plays that uh, role well. Um, he's also really entertaining. Uh, some of the series, some of Dragon Ball Super's best action uh, goes to gas. And uh, yeah, he's just given a lot of great action due to his power set. We get a couple little bits out of him through through action um, that are then described by other characters. But things like him creating the weapons out of thin air and it being acknowledged like, oh, that's that's his thing. That's what he does. And he wants to. Yeah, he got this wish to make him the strongest, but he actually wants to take Renola down with things of his own creation of his own power and it's only when he's pushed beyond that that he has to start breaking out 
teleportation, destruction, all those other things. And he's not happy about it, which in many ways reminds me of Goku. You know, he's, he's not happy about uh, having the, the ritual to get Super Saiyan God, those kinds of things. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if I like it. Successful and sympathetic. Yeah, he, he's very different from what a normal final antagonist, antagonist would be. You, you brought up one other thing, which is like characterization through action. And I think that's mm-hmm. something the arc does very well uh, as well. I remember seeing a lot of comments from fans as this was going in serialization because you had these chapters that were mostly action. I remember seeing comments specifically that it felt like just just action figures fighting or like characters we don't care about just fighting for the sake of the spectacle. And I, I really, coming back through it, I don't feel that necessarily. We have those moments where Gas is being uh, very sensitive as to what techniques he's using and whether they're his own or not. Um, there's constantly, there's this constant shifting dynamic to... Uh, Vegeta and Granola's fights and then the way Vegeta is trying to impart different lessons to Granola and, and grow on his own. Um, yeah, I really feel like the the interworking of the characterization into the ac- uh, action is quite strong here. Um, I guess as a caveat, the things that the characters are struggling with in this arc are pretty martial arts centric, like it's all tied to how they're going to keep developing as martial artists. Um, but that's fine. There's a little bit more going on than that. And it is a martial arts drama. So um, yeah, there is there are arcs to track with every character, and I feel like they're integrated well with the action. There's a couple of quick things I want to mention, just stemming off of Gas over to Alec. I like how he's the schemer. He's really trying to be two steps ahead of everyone else. Uh, and I thought it was very funny coming at the end, finding out he's actually the weakest of the group. Um, come to find that all of this out through Frieza, uh, appearing literally just slamming into the ground, almost at the very end of the last chapter of this, taking out the bad guy, taking out the bad guy's boss, taking out the two main characters, recruiting people back into his army, piecing out, and here we are. That's it. That's how the arc ends. <laughs> it's the strangest arc conclusion I think we've had in Dragon Ball thus far. Um, and it sounds absolutely ridiculous on paper. It works because Frieza is just so damn charming. It's, it's really entertaining. It's really funny. Uh, it feels like a Toriyama-styled ending. Um, it does make the whole arc before that just a comedy of errors, especially because everyone is so focused on Frieza. He's the entire motivation for Granola and the Hitas. Um, it's also a good thematic payoff. Everyone is trying to find... Uh, well, not everyone. Gas and Granola are trying to use these shortcuts to become the strongest, and ultimately the strongest character, maybe the one the Oracle Fish was predicting, maybe not, um, mm-hmm. was just out there working hard. He was he was just in a room of spirit and time working really hard for 10 years. Um, and he just winds up putting everyone else to shame. So it's a comical and thematically fitting ending. And uh, yeah, I really appreciated it because of that. And it also fits back into the whole idea of right in Dragon Ball, there's always someone better. So we don't have a clear answer uh, for the Oracle Fish's um, prediction or prophecy, right? It, it says soon that the strongest being will will come into existence, right? And the balance of the universe will shift. And at the end, the character, well, at various points, they think it's Granola or Gas. And then at the end, Goku supposes it might be Frieza. And we never get a clear answer. It, it might be him. It might not be. Um, and I don't think we ever really need to know what uh, who, who it was or what the answer to that is. Um, it's just a little comical, sort of thematically fitting Dragon Ball note to end on. Um, yeah, and I really appreciate the, the note that goes out on with Frieza. It's funny that you bring up the Oracle Fish specifically, because on reread, I, I didn't catch this the first time, but on reread, the Oracle Fish sees gas. Yeah. And uh, he's like, who's, who's that? that? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and Whis is like, oh. So it's like, it, 
there are so many great bits of foreshadowing in this arc that you you catch on reread and that's one of them knowing that like oh granola and gas are they're not the two guys it's someone else mm. and you don't catch that until the end and uh you know the bits that, like i already talked about of ultra instinct and ultra ego being brought up and it's just it, this arc changes on reread it's a different product I want to start heading towards the finish line and where I'm going to go are favorite moments. Uh, I have two. I think they're tied. One of which we've already discussed, and that was, I guess you did bite your pants. I like silence, galactic patrol prison, and then everyone just busts out laughing. That's just amazing. Just a fantastic moment. Um, Another one that really got to me, and it's perfect Toriyama-style writing. It's very dry humor. I've talked about this a lot. It does come in the form of Jocko, Galactic Patrol. Um, The beginning of the arc, I forget exactly how it's phrased, but it's something like, um, finally, the the universe is at peace. Jocko leans back in his chair and it just goes, another peaceful day in the universe. Something about that just... kills me i love 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 that style of delivery like narration pause restate narration through dialogue that's that's good shit right there how about you guys what was favorite moment or two i mean for me it's the teleportation stuff i think that was it just that whole chapter but that specifically the bit where goku teleports to different uh galactic patrol members by locking onto their energy and then because he knows, because they build up that when you become the greatest warrior, you effectively are gaining everything that the previous greatest warrior had, thus making you even better. But because Gas is unfamiliar with the technique to a certain degree, doesn't know who all the energy signals that Goku was locking onto, uh, Goku's just able to ghost him. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just incredible. Uh, if I had to pick a highlight, it's probably, I guess, the entire Vegeta granola fight. Um, Ultra Ego, Vegeta versus Granola, especially. I love the way that ends. There's so much subtle characterization. Um, the fact that they both get to a point where they're just ready to die fighting each other because they feel so sick and guilty over what they are um, is is just great. I, I didn't expect that one of Vegeta's best moments as a character would come in Dragon Ball Super as a sequel, but that's up there. I think uh, that fight is one of Vegeta's best moments across either series. That kind of ties into one of my final questions for everyone, and it's two halves of the same question did the granola arc work as another super arc and does it work as a dragon ball arc you know we've talked a lot about how dragon ball super not quote-unquote real dragon ball it is sequel twilight years decades removed different writing team kind of thing going on but it's positioned as real dragon ball and especially a western audience really considers it real dragon ball because we've never had a real break in terms of presence of the series so let's just talk strictly in terms of dragon ball super um did this feel like um like it paid off in terms of where super has been going as we talked a lot on moro with you know everything was universe multi-universe focused um everything that came you know that wasn't resurrection f really um is we we leave battle of gods learning about the universes then as we get into it we get a multi-universe tournament we get uh, a god from another universe attacking other universes we get all the universes fighting together but then we're back to just universe seven and just you know battle on earth and some space pirates and stuff um and we're back here again with a, a small group focused back on the science again um, does this feel like Dragon Ball Super or something else? I, I don't know how to phrase that question. That's a bad job hosting, Mike. No, that, that makes sense to me because there is a really 
sharp sort of divide between the first half of Super and I think the later half, right? So everything up through the Tournament of Power is expanding in scope the way the original Dragon Ball series did constantly, right? Every arc was a little bit broader in scope and scale than last, maybe not the androids and cell arc, but Mm -hmm. um, it tended to expand outward, right? You have the strongest on Earth, and then we go into space, and then uh, we go back to Earth for cell for a little bit. But then we're out in the the grand cosmos, right? All of existence is a threat. Sure. Um, so, yeah, there was that kind of similar ex- escalation throughout the first part of Super. You have threats on Earth, and then, okay, we're having a tournament with one other universe. And then, oh, we're doing a longer, more serious storyline in another universe. And then we're getting everyone together, all these multiversal fighters together for one tournament. And then once that's done, we're back to Universe 7, and it kind of refocuses. So the scope is very super part two, and that mm, sort yeah. of pulling back does feel a little a little strange compared to what Dragon Ball had always been. Um, but as far as how this arc fits in, if you read the Dragon Ball Super manga from the beginning, this doesn't necessarily apply to the TV series or the movies, there are really sort of solidly tracked through lines for Goku and Vegeta and the way they're developing um, as martial artists and as people, because those intertwine. Um, and yeah, that those through lines continue right through this arc and I think are, are better touched upon in this arc than in the previous one, at least. Um, so as a self-contained manga series, um, this really does fit right in as the next part. It has the, the same through lines that we've been tracking the whole time. I know I had described this arc as kind of a retelling of a movie, but in terms of the story beats and how many of them there are, it's not that far off from Future Trunks, I would say, Mm. uh, from that arc. Uh, When you really boil Future Trunks arc down to five sentences, uh, it's (laughs) not a whole lot happens. It's a series of fights uh, back and forth between the the present and the future. Whereas Moro felt more like an adventure. People were going off planet to train individually. Things were happening on Earth at the same time. It was waiting for Goku. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one is a little bit, yeah, more self-contained. It doesn't uh, grow existence, but it does expand and color the universe that we're in. Much in the way that I think Resurrection F did, uh, not to praise Resurrec- Resurrection F too much, but that movie implying that Frieza's forces continued on without him yeah. the whole time that Dragon Ball was was going on was incredible. And what this arc does is say that, hey, uh, people knew Frieza's forces were kind of like in, in dregs after he was gone. There was this other group that's kind of working behind the shadows, working with Frieza. They know Frieza's back, and Frieza's like this looming threat. The whole series, the whole the whole arc, uh, it, it's it just it colors in pieces that we didn't know before, but really should have always assumed might have been there. Yeah. I, one other thing I want to comment on as far as the structure um, and whether or not it feels like Super or Dragon Ball, it does feel like the TV series. That it does feel like the TV adjacent arcs of Super, and I guess the movies where. Toriyama has been really fond of these two-act structures, these smaller-scale stories with heavy presence of guest characters. Um, Granola arc, the Granola arc fits right alongside that model. It feels like Future Trunks or U6 or the, the mm. Tournament of Power. The only real outlier to that kind of scope and, and formula is the Moro arc, which feels a little bit more expansive. Um, so yeah, this feels like early super structurally. I guess we look ahead to the future. Um, something I, I'm pretty sure I alluded to earlier was we have a little bit of an unprecedented hiatus from Toyotaro. Um, we've if effectively gone from 
what was it, the November 2012 issue of V-Jump when Dragon Ball Heroes Victory Mission began. Other than an odd issue here or there, like between Victory Mission and the Resurrection F manga, and then between the Resurrection F manga and the Dragon Ball Super manga beginning, this dude's been going for a full decade in V-Jump every month. And yeah, we've expanded pages. We started at two pages and we're at 45 pages per chapter now. That's a huge jump in, in workload. But we got uh, an actual hiatus between arcs here. Um, we've It's going to be, was it four months between the end of the previous one and going into the next chapter here in December. Uh, and we actually know where it is we're going this time. It's not that we just have the name of a character, name of an arc. Um, we know we're going into a, a retelling, starting with the events prior, <laughs> of uh, Dragon Ball Super Superhero. Uh, so not only do we know where we're going, but we're also strangely getting a retelling of a movie, which is something the Dragon Ball Super manga explicitly has not done well or at all up to this point. Battle of Gods was cruising through four four chapters sometimes without any dialogue telling you basically go watch the movie resurrection f happens off camera um we get a page telling you that broly happened and now we're just going to go straight up into a superhero retelling um tell me your thoughts on the future of the dragon ball super manga ken i am not totally sold that we are going for a full retelling i'll believe that when i see it yeah um i think we're gonna go the feeling I get from this is that, you know, starting from events, from prior events, is that we're going to just kind of connect the dots a little bit. Um, you know, Broly and uh, and Superhero never really addressed what was going on in the manga for different reasons and production schedules yeah. and everything. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, things get written at different times. But I would love to see from this, uh, why are they training with Broly on Beerus's planet? What is going on that would, you know, we in superhero now we know, I guess, since nothing's happening in between these two stories, we know that Black Frieza uh -huh. should have been around and would have been on their mind. So is that is why that they it? go and find Broly? Yeah. Uh, what are the different things that could get us to those points in superhero? So I think that uh, my hope is that we're just going to get context mm -hmm. and that it'll go, it'll hit a point and then it will go, hey, uh, out on Blu-ray now. All right. Now we're going to the next story. Yeah, we're actually getting, I think, December 2nd, so we're only like a week or so away, the jump anime comic version of Superhero. So that is coming. That will be on store shelves in addition to the, the Blu-ray next month, too. It's going to be a busy December, let me tell you. God, Ian, your thoughts on the future of the Dragon Ball Super manga. Um, what do you think about Ken's theory? Are we going to get an adaptation or are we going to just get connective tissue? And um, Their wording is focused on the prequel element, but they have also had some bits that have implied they're going to at least touch on the elements of the film or the events of the film in some capacity. So I don't know. I, as far as what I hope, I, I guess I lean toward... Oh, gosh, I don't know. I would rather have the manga be its own thing so i'm i'm happy to get a couple of mm. chapters of movie adaptation just so it coheres but we haven't gotten that for the ones prior so that's already a little weird i guess i'd be fine or happy with just getting some context to tie it into the manga version of events and then like ken said skipping over or just barely touching on the movie events which might be what they do as well um i don't know i, I guess my general sense is i can see ways that the adaptation or prequel material will be enjoyable um, but it's kind of a letdown because I was excited seeing the manga telling its own stories and, and I wanted to just see it truck along on that. 
my my one worry is that it maybe heralds the manga taking a back seat again and sort of being in more of a, an adaptive role to the multimedia elements. And uh, mm. I think that would just kind of be a shame because I really liked seeing it as uh, something where they could do their own thing. And it's inherently sort of a less restrictive medium and format than, say, a TV series, which has right all of these cooks in the kitchen and it's, it's mm-hmm. a very different production atmosphere. So I really enjoyed and will always enjoy seeing manga being the main serialized medium or or the primary one or the one where they get to do the storylines first. So if that indeed heralds it taking a backseat again, I, I guess that's too bad. And we'll see where that goes. That's tough. Like, I, I think I'm coming around on that idea of we get some prequel material. We get the the one page, then the movie happens. But then what happens? Because... Can to your timeline point, we're running up against twenty eight here. Like we we gotta get there, and we know it happens. They've made comments before about this is where the story leads. So in in their minds, that is still what happens in the story of Dragon Ball. Do, have they just written themselves into a corner where there's nothing left for them to do? I like I don't know what they do here now. We've been saying that about Dragon Ball forever, but they're they're really towards the end of this timeline. Yeah, the joke was always looking at Goten and Trunks as how much further we got into this. And they're they're big now. (laughs) So we're on a real tight space of possibly just a few months of where we can work between uh, Superhero and the 28th Tenkaichi Budokai. It's it's uh, yeah, they're in a corner. I don't know what I want them to do. I always loved how they've avoided getting there, but they can't avoid it for too much longer. And I love how I talked about this pretty often. Ian, I, I know you're in the same boat as me. You open the pages of V-Jump. You would never know that Dragon Ball GT has been off the air since 1997. It seems like the primary focus of the merchandise today. They don't want to battle against that either. I, I always raise the point of it's it behooves them to never talk about the canonicity status of anything because they're trying to sell you $150 statues of these other characters. <laughs> Ken's yeah, I've not- got a Vegeta coming in in January. Yeah, Super Saiyan 4 Vegeta coming in. Figure arts, check it out. <laughs> I don't know what they do. I don't know what I want them to do. I'm... This is this is the point that I've been the most excited and cur- curiously excited about what lies ahead for us in Dragon Ball, more so in manga form than possibly in anything else, because I don't know what they do. I don't know where they go. When we were doing the Moro arc, I think I said something along the lines of, I want to see them do more with the multiverse and go more into that godscape of everything. But Having just read Granola and with what happens in Superhero, I don't think I want that. No. <laughs> Let's just keep well, – there's still so much to tell within the confines of the, the mortal realm. Uh, maybe we'll figure out the Namekian realm and what that's all about. Or, <laughs> what realm or we'll we came tip, from? You know, we have a whole wealth of ideas from Dragon Ball AF that Toyotaro, if he is indeed Toybull, can start drawing from, such as like the Dragon Dimension or or whatever that was, where Goku and I think Paikon uh, Paikon were training. Uh-huh. So uh, there's a still there's so much to do, so much other stuff they can touch on. Uh, yeah, uh, curious, delighted. I can't wait to see where we're going next. I say that is the end of our review for Granola the Survivor the latest arc of the Dragon Ball Super Manga. I thank you all for joining me. Ian, I appreciate you coming all the way from Japan 
How are things going over there? What's up in Japan these days? Oh, uh, it's good. Just uh, busy with work. And yeah, thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, arranging the, the schedule around me, especially uh, so that I can come on in the morning. No, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm mostly kind of curious. What's the state of visitation and coronavirus going? <laughs> How, how's that affecting everyone right now? Well, we're open for tourism now. So everything is, is back up and open. Um, so biggest way that's impacted me is just seeing tourists around again because um, oh we're gonna get, we're gonna get sirens in the background maybe. <laughs> um well if they're on there they're on there uh yeah i live in tokyo uh so just being around the city um suddenly uh just an influx of crowds and areas that were a little bit more open before but it's nice um i, I was waiting for it, it to open back up so uh overall glad with those developments glad you're doing well i appreciate it Ken, thank you for joining as well. Yeah, I just want to remind you that the Bardock DLC for Kakarot's coming out in a couple <laughs> sure months. Is. So you and I and probably Randy, uh-huh. I guess, will be... Uh, we're seeing Bardock again. There's no escape <laughs> from this guy. Can't wait to fight gas. They'll definitely put that in, right? They're going to let us fight gas? Yeah, we want to place bets on... Like, we're totally getting Dragon Ball Minus and etc. in there, right? Episode of Bardock, baby! Yeah, let's go. All right, well, Ken, you'll be joining me for that. That's definitely, we think it's coming next month. We know the the port is coming in January, and we assume the DLC January. is around that time. Would hope, yeah. All right, well, look forward to that. We'll definitely have an episode um, before then. Stay tuned towards the end of this episode for information about what is coming in future podcast episodes. But that's the end of the topic portion. So again, I say thanks to Ken, thanks to Ian, and we'll transition to the rest of your ongoing episode of Konzenshu, the podcast. Thanks again to Ken and Ian. I always appreciate their insight and their enthusiasm some of my favorite folks to have here on the show. And uh, I hope and I know you feel the same way. We're actually going to do something a little unusual for us and that we are going to dedicate a second episode to this topic. We want to hear what you all thought of this arc, particularly after listening to this conversation. Um, My own thoughts have changed They've gone back to what they first were. They changed again, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, multiple times since first reading, rereading, and recording this podcast. I would love to hear what you all think. So here's what we're going to do. Hit us up uh, one of a few different ways. Way number one, you can respond in the respective thread over on our forum there at Konzenshu. Forum's coming back. Mark my words, coming back. Anyone want to go back to Usenet? We'll go. Uh, Method number two, you can tweet at us, respond to this post at Konzenshu, and we'll look at the tweets as long as that trash fire exists for a little bit longer. Uh, number three, kick us an old-fashioned email, podcast at com. We will select a bunch of your responses for the next episode and chat them up. Uh, if you want to write a five-page double-space, 12-point, times-new-Roman essay you're free to do so i don't know that we'll read that whole thing so you get you know, relatively concise thoughts uh we'll go through and and we'll we'll pick them out and we'll we'll chat out a few of those so look forward to that that is the plan for the next episode of the podcast in december in the year of our lord dende 2022 that is the plan right now all right onwards in terms of the website we've been a bit heads down plugging away things as usual uh, a special note i do want to point out some new translation stuff we've got posted jose has knocked out all of the video game interviews from the 30th anniversary super history book and as of this podcast uh, as i'm talking right now we're three out of five in posting on the site so absolutely go check that all out uh, there's so much 
much to learn there. Um, the first interview is about the card-based RPGs from the Famicom era. The second interview is about the Super Butoden era on the Super Famicom. The third, which is the latest we've posted right now, is about the Dragon Ball Z slash Budokai games from the PS2 era. Then we're onward into the Sparking, the Budokai Tenkaichi games, if you will. And then it wraps up with uh, Xenoverse stuff. There is so much good stuff in this book, and I'm so glad that we are finally able to uh, crack into it and, and get some some text out of there. What else? We're going to have a lot more to announce and share about the wiki in 2023. But for now, uh, I'll just tease and say stay tuned for a little announcement slash request in December. Uh, it'll be very obvious what and when <laughs> that is. So just stay tuned to everything that uh, is content you. Other than that, uh, geez, you can find me most Saturday nights playing Mario Kart on Twitch with some of the voices you hear here on the show alongside some of the other extended family and friends. Some of my, my personal Twitch there. And we're going to leave it there. www.kanzenshu.com. That is K-A-N-Z-E-N-S-H-U-U.com. Kanzenshu.com. The whole shebang is there. Uh, and I would be remiss not to mention, and in fact, I am re-recording the very end of this because I'm not used to doing the self-promotion part of this. Patreon.com slash Kanzenshu. Um, if you haven't heard, we launched it earlier this year. Uh, we are keeping it very basic. Two levels. One dollar. We just like you and support you. Five dollar. Discord access. That is all we're doing. That's all we're asking. We're having a lovely time. We would love to see you there. That's that. Stay tuned to the site and the socials. We will see you next time here on the podcast. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Hey, 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 this is Kanzenshu, the podcast episode 200. That's not even remotely accurate.